0: The first generation was a shoe polisher before he became a diamond polisher. And I guess those professions were quite close to each other. And he started to get interested in the diamond trade and eventually build up a very high reputation of diamond polishing. I think the beauty of our all the different generations is innovation has always been to the core of of every single generation. We've always been doing something new over the course of the different generations. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to the story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman.
1: All right. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Mike Asher. How are you? Very good. Thanks, Eric. Good to be. Here. Thanks for coming on. So, going to do it a little differently today. Usually, obviously, I want to hear your origin story, but given your history, I want to go back. So the, you're sixth generation in Royal Asher, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So this generation is that three greats, great, great, great grandfather started
0: it. I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It comes close. I never count uh, too too often. Uh, absolutely. I'm yeah. just saying six generations. Generation that most of the, most of the time is impressive enough. Yeah. But I think that's fair. So I want to start
1: with how your great, great, great. Great, great, great grandfather started in the business but, and then get up to how you ended up joining and coming on board and in the future, so to speak. But let's start with, yeah, how did it all start? How did the business all start?
0: Well, actually, uh, in our private office, in uh, right behind, you can actually see the number one generation, 1854. And then this is number two, number three, number four on the corner and number five in that corner. And we always said, you don't want to hang on the wall. That's the <laughs> last place you want to be. But uh, no, actually, the first generation was a shoe polisher mm-hmm. before he became a diamond polisher. And I guess those professions were quite close to each other. And he started to get interested in the diamond trade and eventually build up a very high reputation of diamond polishing. I think the beauty of our, all the different generations is innovation has always been to the core of, of every single generation. We have always been doing something new over the course of the different generations. So second generation was probably the genius in our family. He created the world's first pet diamond, globally known as the Asher Cut Diamond. And I think, well, we are probably one of the most famous last names in the diamond industry because there's only one real family which has a cut name behind as their surname and, and they build up a very high reputation of diamond polishing onto actually the second world war. We had 500 polishers working in our factory and then in Amsterdam, Amsterdam, right? Yeah. All in Amsterdam. And after the second world war, we only had five people left or 15 people left. Wow. So, yeah. yeah. So everybody was deported. We had to start all over again. And that original asher cut where we had a patent on expired. We always say uh, Mr. Kleenex never knew his name became a tissue. So, so today, when uh, you uh, anybody walks into a, a retail store and they ask for an Asher cut, it's actually a square emerald. Oh. We redesigned that old cut in 1990-2000, just after I started in the business. And and we became the first ro- authentic Royal Diamond Company in the world in 1980, when my grandfather retired. And what does so that mean uh, in terms of uh, A Royal title is, is a recognition of the significant role you play in the industry. If you have to be older than 100 years start with you have to have a strong focus on social and ethical responsibility and leading in your industry and all of those uh, factors we um, we were able to hit the checkbox and our royal family bestowed us the royal title in nineteen and from that moment we rebranded the business to royal usher and and build it until we where we are today so uh yeah that's uh that's that's a brief history
1: yeah brief history so Let's take it to you now. So you're born in Amsterdam, and I imagine the moment you're born, you love diamonds, and that was it. You're going to be in it the rest of your life. Or, like, tell me about, like, the early childhood. How was it growing up? And, again, was there sort of an immediate expectation that you were going to be the next person to run the company since this was going to be number six?
0: Well, I don't, you know, my parents always were very liberal. And have all the I have an older sister and an older brother. I run the company together with my sister. And we always had free choice. But mm-hmm. you know how it is. So I have four small kids. And you, the st- age of five years old, you start to feed them with this. Well, let's say we start to spoil them. So we bring them to the factory. We bring them to the the office. We start to show them very big diamonds. My number three, he's a five-year-old boy. I started to teach him how to polish diamonds. And my dad did the same thing with me. And it's when you get infected by this wonderful, wonderful world of beauty. I actually already knew when I was eight that I was destined to be in the family business.
1: Yeah, and so I'm curious. Before eight, where did you have other like? Did you have more of, like the typical childhood? Like, I'm going to be an astronaut or anything that was coming up or probably.
0: I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to remember this. Uh, the diamonds, it's in our DNA, it's in our blood, you know. So we always. I think it's it's also not only diamonds itself, it's the family business. Every yeah. child in our family has been brought up with that sense of how important and how beautiful the family business itself is. So yeah. I think that's even more important.
1: Yeah, and it's hard to replicate that when you have that in front of you, like to go do your own thing or join someone else's company when you have this beautiful thing that has been around for so long. I feel like it's, it's, it's a hard trade-off. It's something that's hard to attract away from.
0: Yeah, well, you know, I have an older brother who's... uh more, uh, he's the he's the tech guy. He's more in the, He's the IT. He works for a very big oil company. Um, and, but he's a strategic advisor to the business. So. Although he chose his own path, he's always a little bit connected with them. Yeah, no, I get that. And so, yeah, so tell me about like growing up. So,
1: eight years old, was it five years old? The same that you started polishing and being brought into the factory, and that's where
0: it started. Or absolutely, I, I remember my old school trips, you know. And then uh, we actually in the, in in one of the parts of our building there was a technological museum where all the schools from Amsterdam would go on the school trip. Yeah. So when I was here, I will always jump the line, ran to my dad who was standing there, you know, and showed, showed the factory around to to my classmates. Yeah, it's always been the same. Yeah, absolutely. And so
1: once you're eight years old, you decide Did from there, like, did you continue? When did you start like working in it? Like you were, again, you were visiting all the time. You were doing school trips, but. From there, like, how did it progress? How did it, once you knew? All right, so
0: I'll be very very honest with you. I was a terrible, terrible kid in school. I hated studying. I think I did four different high schools eventually when i finished uh, my high school my dad told me okay what do you want to do do you want to go to university or do you want to come start in a business and i looked at him and i said there's definitely no doubt for me what i'm going to do so i started in the business immediately and i started as a diamond polisher i had to somebody had to teach me how to polish diamond. i thought i was pretty good at it i remember diamond polishing itself it's quite a it's quite a boring process you don't do anything else than Polish, look at the stone. Polish, look at the stone. So the profession itself, it, it is, you know, you have really have to have specialty, specialists to it. And, and I'm more of a people's person. So after stone number three, I started to put a little bit more pressure because I thought it would go, speed up the process. And then stone number three got a little bit red from the pressure. And then I put a little bit more pressure on and then it exploded. <laughs> so I, I took that Small, exploded, you know, it looked like a pie with a quarter out of it. And then yeah. I took it to my uncle, who at the time was my boss, and and I did and I him with such a big head, you know, I said, I'm so sorry, but I thought I speed up the process, it would be better. And then he looked at me and says, well, this just delayed the process, you have to start all over again. So uh, uh, that was a very good school, a uh, very good lesson. Yeah. But the, actually the basic of the diamond polishing has taught me what I am doing in my entire career right now. I designed diamonds. I create new patterns, new diagrams to improve the sparkle and the life of actually existing diamonds. And uh, so I, I run the production. I run the design process of beauty, as we call it. And in the meantime, I did everything that you can think
1: of within the company. Just get to that. So you went from polishing diamonds, you had your fourth one
0: explode. <laughs> yeah. And then actually what happened was I decided I wanted to become a gemologist. So I actually went uh, very near to your place, Cosbad San Diego. Studied there gemology for a year, the Gemological Institute of America, which was a lot of fun. After that, I came back and became assistant buyer for the business from rough to polished. uh then i did financial management as a study next to it because i started to enjoy education more and i started to do a modular mba next to the business and um well in 2006 my uncle passed away it was at that time my mentor my boss he really taught me the business and i had to take his seat next to my dad my sister just joined our business two years before she moved to america to run the u.s business yeah, and from there on Together with my father and sister, we really started to build out our global diamond brand in all different uh, regions. So we sell, we, sell the business, we sell our product, the Royal Asher diamonds, which are four five patent diamond cuts at the moment. A round, brilliant cut, a pear shape, an oval, a cushion, as well as the Royal Asher cut in over 30 countries globally right now.
1: And and what are th- what's unique about the cuts? Like obviously they're based off of other cuts, as you just said. But like, what makes the
0: aster cut something that's so desirable? All right. So so the original aster cut, as most people know it, is a step cut diamond, which means that the bottom of the of the diamond has been cut into in different steps, while a brilliant cut is cut from the side into a point. So it creates a total different type of re- reflection, which is unique in, in our in the diamonds it is it has dramatically cut corners it has a different proposition so the life and the fire that you get out of a diamond when you look into a diamond is yeah. totally than any other stone in the world got it
1: and yeah. you guys figured out how to then replicate that across the different cuts that people want aesthetically so you get both is that kind of the idea uh
0: yeah sort of we do that in in different types of cuts but uh, we also created a few different patterns i think the beauty of all those different patterns, the diamond cuts, we cut for beauty. We really focus on only cutting the most beautiful diamonds in the world. And, and again, if you tie that back to the history of the business, in 1908 the largest rough diamond ever found in South Africa, was given as a peace offering to King Edward VII of Great Britain. And the king at that time approached my grandfather, or great great grandfather, I must say, to cut and polish that diamond for him. And and he did, very successfully. He cut nine large stones and six small stones out of it. And the number one and two are in the imperial, imperial state crown of Queen Elizabeth, still today.
1: So really, All like you, made, our, you guys made the crown jewels, basically.
0: We made the crown jewels, exactly. Yeah, And I think what the, the beautiful beautiful part of that is that all our patents, I try to get inspiration of those large diamonds. So because when they cut those large diamonds, they actually cut it with more facets than a generic diamond because they wanted to improve the reflection of the light. in so even 120 years ago, they started to think like we think today. Got
1: it. And OK, so you step in. You said 2006, right?
0: Well, you know, I started in nineteen eight in the business. And then in 2006, I had to take a big chunk of the role my uncle had. But I think in 2000, uh, let's say around 15, my father, my sister and I were all equal partners in the business. Got it. And
1: you mentioned that you were in 30, you guys put it into 30 countries and your sister was working on the U.S. Was it not as international before you stepped into the business? Like your before your generation?
0: Uh it was different. We were very international. We used to be the Largest diamond manufacturer in the Netherlands, and we would supply all the major brands. So we would supply Bulgari, we would supply Van Cleef, we would supply Cartier. I still have our production books from, let's say, 1960s, where you see all these big brand names. Today, I would not sell a stone, a, di- a royal Usher diamond, to Tiffany's or Cartier because they won't sell my brand, and that's that's, I think a change that that shift is what my father my sister and myself has dramatically implemented over the entire business
1: so okay so for the past 15 years or so you guys have been really building the Asher name as opposed to just being a B2B business you wanted to have that consumer brand
0: yeah Absolutely.
1: Got it. And so 2015. I'm curious. What was the role of your uncle versus your father? What were they? What was the
0: responsibility? Oh, well, actually, it's an interesting question. So we do everything on consensus management. Yeah. So we we don't make any decisions without the other one agreeing to the decision. Not with my dad was here. He retired by the way in, in 2020 perfect timing right before the pandemic hit. Yeah, it's your problem now i've been doing this long enough Hi, my sister and i still have the same she does she's responsible for the north american market responsible for the marketing and the jewelry side of the business mm-hmm. and i'm responsible for diamond design production and southeast asia more mm-hmm. of it and then we come together in europe which is a smaller region and that was a little bit on how they divided the world as well you know you kind of and and but once in a while, I traveled to the U.S. quite often when we do sales training or we do big projects. And my sister travels to the Far East as well for the same idea. So, but uh, I think the marketing part and diamond production, finance, those are really mainly split up between the two of us. Yeah. The rest together. But, and you know, the funny thing is when, when we don't agree, we have a drink. And that's a, a tradition we've kept in the family business for years and years and years. Yeah. And so you have a drink and then what happens? Do you just talk continue to talk it over? You- yeah, and I have 10 times, you know, you, you take the time. If you're in a very fast-paced business, day-to-day business, uh, you're working 6 a.m. for Japan until midnight for New Zealand when they wake up or, yeah. or or the U.S. market when they close down, anything in between. So you are very fast-paced. Yeah. If you don't agree, you don't have time to take a moment and start to non-judgmental understand what the other thought process business i think is the best for this because it's not always it's not about what i think it's about what's best for the business and uh i think that's important so yeah we've been 99 percent. it always works because you take yeah. your time right? you really time to, to start and discuss the solution
1: when you both have similar context and you both are on the same page of what you want like you're you know you're rowing the same direction so generally if there's a disagreement it's probably a lack of communication not a bad idea necessarily someone is just probably missing what the other person's thinking
0: yeah definitely
1: yeah so you, you know since 2020 you and your sister have taken over how have things
0: changed the past couple of years uh well a <sighs> little obviously <but laughs> yeah look, we had a little pandemic Well, uh, the pandemic is such a strange period i think for everybody in anybody's life of course the loss of life that we experienced uh of friends family relatives for some More than others, which is something that we always think about from the business perspective. Yeah, my dad retired March 2nd, two weeks before we had to close the door for our first lockdown. In the first few weeks, we looked at each other and said, Okay, what the heck are we going to do? Now, the only thing that we, you know, our advantage still is, and at that time was, that we sell our product over so many different regions that there was not one, one moment that every single door was closed. Yeah. First it was Japan, then it came to Europe, then it came to America, and then and it moved with up and down. So that was the adv- advantage for us. We pivoted the business to e-com, which we didn't do before, or not as much as we did over the past two years. And
1: how, I mean, your average purchase has to be 50, 100,000, know, like in, in, well into the five, six figures. How did you do e-com? in terms of like is someone just going on a website clicking it and go yeah I'll buy a $50,000 diamond it's okay
0: well i think we created an experience which not a lot of people can with our heritage so what people do generally is they log onto our website they look scroll around and see all the information and then they book a virtual appointment with me exactly where we are right now um, and then get into your journey so the beautiful part is nine out of ten sales that i've done over the last year and a half were all made to measure cut to order as we call it so yeah. you buy a diamond from me i will source the diamond first show you the piece then get you through the cutting process take you to the diamond polisher who's working on your stone we really get from mine to market through the whole process, and then it really be- I become part of your story. And well, I have an American client of mine who's actually flying in. He is actually going to polish the diamond himself, but not <laughs> all of it, but part of it. It's yeah. a great experience. So yeah, yeah. that's the re- that's the way how we sell. Let's say a minimum of four figure diamonds online.
1: Yeah. No, it's it's so you basically replicated the experience as close as possible, so that people weren't losing something by not being able to come in in person, which is yeah. great to succeed in that situation, it seems. So, yeah. and I'm curious, what's next for the business? I know you have, you're have you a very, as you said, the business has been built on six generations of innovation. How do you see innovating? What, what are you excited about going forward?
0: Well, actually to really get our ecom off the charge, uh that that's something that we're working on very hard right now in creating that experience for the consumer because for us we used to do b2b business only and uh, dealing with con- the end consumer becoming part of somebody's true moment in life that is for me the cherry on the cake it's really yeah. amazing um and then we do have a few of total different uh business ideas that we've been thinking of. So let's say, and we are working on NFTs, we are working on the digitization of diamond industry, transparency, mind to market. Uh, We work with uh, the bears on code of origin, where we can transparently show which diamond comes from which mine it is registered on the blockchain through a technology from mine to market to your finger and you can always follow that and I'm super excited about it. I think if you look at the whole of our industry the focus on that transparency the focus on corporate social responsibility and being able to prove the provenance I think for us That is the only way forward for the entire diamond. Yeah,
1: no, I agree. And you also are looking at NFTs and that side of things too, right? Like you're staying really on the cutting edge with technologies that are coming out and how they apply to your business.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the beauty of an NFT for our product is when in the hopefully near future you buy a Royal Asher product either via e-commerce or in the store, you get a physical product, but you get the digital twin. With the digital twin, you get an NFT. And on the NFT, you get the actual certificate, not only the certificate of ownership, but also the certificate of the diamond itself. Most diamonds, well actually all diamonds that we sell, have a certificate of an independent laboratory stating the color, the clarity, the cut, and the carrot weight, which determine the value of the diamond. And you can again you can show The Kimberley Process Certificate, so you can actually prove this diamond is non-conflict. The provenance, transparency, and with those things, yeah, we can do a lot more. I envision, if we look at our business, my hope is that we can go through pricing, which means that actually you as an end consumer can see that through the smart contracts, the diamond, the guy who worked on polishing the stone, is fairly treated and paid. So yeah, I think those things are, uh, are, are are super important.
1: That's awesome. So last question for me, if this is more for the general audience, for someone that wants to pursue their dreams, really go after something, you know, create something great, be a part of something great. What's one piece of advice you got along the way that you think people really should hear that's not a common piece or not a common advice?
0: Not a lot of common advice is uh, you get into those clichés, but um, yeah. actually I think which is one of the most difficult parts as is starting or growing or even a long term entrepreneur is staying non-judgmental of other people's opinion. And obviously the cliches collect more brilliant people around you than you are. I do that with let's say friends as advisories, you know, all right. But then when people give you advice don't judge the advice. Take it and try to get as much to build your own knowledge. And I think that is something extremely difficult because yeah. most entrepreneurs How you to say yeah. that properly. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to avoid it. Yeah. So to become non-judgmental, that's absolutely by far one of the most successful elements. Makes
1: sense. Well, Mike, this has been absolutely awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk. Thank
0: you very much for having me. You've been listening to Hawk Talk.